leading a startup team, whether you're delivering a sugar rush, stocking coffee, or getting a regular delivery of snacks, Office Depot has solutions that fit every startup culture, from getting those first business cards and stationery to ordering fleece pullovers with your new logo. To learn how Office Depot and the California Technology Council have partnered to bring you savings on all of these startup essentials and more, go to californiatechnology.org forward slash member benefits. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. As pricing pressures grow on the pharmaceutical industry, a recent article in InVivo argues that drug makers must look to a variety of new pricing models built around collaborations with payers and providers. Such an approach, the authors argue, would minimize conflicts between stakeholders, close the information gap about the real-world value of new drugs, and allow for a more evidence-based approach to pricing. We spoke to Susan Garfield, a principal in EY's Life Science Advisory Services practice and co-author of the InVivo article about the need for new approaches to pricing, why the existing unit price approach is too one-dimensional, and what's at stake for the industry if it fails to innovate new models. Susan, thanks for joining us. Um, Thank you for having me. We're going to talk about drug pricing and the need for the industry to develop new models for for drug pricing. In a piece in InVivo, you you argue that drug pricing is too one-dimensional today and that drug makers will need to forge innovative pricing models and, and new collaborations to support those. We've seen growing pressure, not just from the payer community, but from lawmakers as well. We have periods like this before. Do you see the pressure on pricing today as something fundamentally different than what we've seen in the past? Yeah, I think it is. I think today we have many different stakeholders converging around the issue of drug pricing, and that's creating pressure from all sides. So it's not just a political hot button issue. It's not just being in the press because of Turing and Valiant. It's not just coming um, to bear because of the aging population and the increasing pressures on Medicare. And it's not just coming to bear because people are paying more out of pocket for drugs. It's all of these things interacting and creating an environment where not one actor in the healthcare system can, can fix this problem on its own. I think people are increasingly understanding that collaboration is needed flexibility, new models to to meet the changing healthcare needs of the future. Well, perhaps you can demystify for our listeners how drug companies price their products today. What determines the new price of a drug and and how much leeway does a company have in in setting that versus negotiating with the payer community? Yes, so setting drug prices um, is both an art and a science. Historically, what manufacturers have done is look at the value of their drug um, compared to what is out there in the marketplace. So if there's an existing drug to treat um, a disease, 
and the new drug that's coming out is incrementally more effective. Um, and historically, there's been a belief and a practice that we should charge more for that innovation. And in addition, um, thing, new drugs that have come out have also had benefits, maybe not in the clinical outcomes, but maybe in the way that they're taken. So maybe if you take a pill once a day versus four times a day, manufacturers have um, expected to re- receive a premium price for that um, for that innovation. I think today there's an increasing call for pricing to reflect the true value that the healthcare system and patients receive from a drug. And so um, is a 5 or 10% improvement in clinical outcomes deserving of a 20 or 30% price premium? It, it may be. It, it depends on a lot of different variables. But I think stakeholders, um, including payers, hospitals, patients, clinicians, policymakers, are all beginning to ask for a more rational approach to pricing, um, given that we, we only have so many resources. There's not an infinite amount of healthcare dollars that can reasonably be spent on new drugs. Um, but we also recognize that new drugs are the pathway to treatment and cure for many patients. And we want to rein in healthcare spending, but we also want to incent innovation, make sure that, that companies bring new products to market, invest in R&D, um, and ultimately patients benefit from an a very rich and welcoming um, business environment for um, clinical development. So it's it's a balancing act. It, it you know I think we spend a lot of time discussing pricing, but I think we need to really look at pricing within the, the larger development paradigm and and figure out how the pricing can reflect value and the stakeholders can align around um, innovations and getting them. The patients, which is really everyone's goal. Well, what's wrong with the pricing model today? Where is it failing? Well, it's, it's, it's interesting. I think it fails on a couple of levels. On one, it, it fails uh, a common sense test for many people in that the U.S. pays so much more for drugs than other countries. And so a feeling of imbalance um, that I think stalks a little bit of the political fire um, on this issue. So that's 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 one thing. I think the other thing is that historically, the U.S. is um, a free pricing market, and and by that I mean that the manufacturer can set the price at whatever they want to set the price at, and then they negotiate with payers um, for access to their drugs. So they're not negotiating what the Price should be per se. They're negotiating where um, and how the payer will um, will provide access to the drug, either from a formulary status perspective. Now, within that, it's not an entirely um, fair thing to say that payers don't negotiate on price, because of course, in um, exchange for higher level access, they're going to demand things like. Um, rebates to make the drugs more affordable. So payers are certainly negotiating um, in that way. But we don't have um, a national price negotiation for drugs the way many other markets do. And some some may say that that's 
part of the problem. Now, I tend to think that there's not one solution that meets all the needs. I think what we really need to do is figure out how public and private payers alike can get on the same table with many on the same side of the table as manufacturers and and help figure out how to get really good strong innovative innovative patients innovative products to patients in an affordable way and I think that means diverting resources from mediocre treatments or treatments that offer little proven value to those that are most highly effective and impactful. And and that may be some of the rationalization of resource distribution um, and investment that we see moving forward. One of the things we've seen is payers get a lot more aggressive on pricing and try to leverage competition between drug makers to contain prices and, and drive them lower. How effective a strategy has this been for payers? I think it's been really effective. Like in any other um, market, competition does lead to downward pricing pressure, especially if the products are seen as equivalent. Um, so in in therapeutic classes where there are multiple entrants with relatively similar efficacy, we have seen traditionally downward price pressure and more affordability for patients. Um, and the the ultimate end game of that, of course, is when generics enter a class and the pricing decreases significantly. Um, but there are also many areas where new drugs come into a therapeutic class and they may be competitive, but they may not be equivalent. And that's where pricing variation becomes really interesting and, and, and not as easy as in, you know, an area like consumer product goods where you're comparing one TV versus another or one sweater versus another. When a drug has a different um, impact to either certain patient subpopulations or the different types of disease or may have a slightly different duration of effect in some patients versus another, it's, um, it's difficult for manufacturers and payers to align them with the value of some of those nuanced differences are and how that should be reflected both in pricing and access. Um, so in some competitive therapeutic areas, payers will um, give equal access to drugs and let clinicians decide. And, and in others, they'll prefer the less expensive drug and make, make patients step through that, fail the less expensive drug before gaining expensive drugs. So there's several ways to um, control access given some of the pricing um, pricing variables as well. well we, we do talk about moving towards paying for value, but value can be in the eye of the beholder. And from a payer's point of view, value can be uncertain for a new drug that hasn't been used by patients in real world settings. How do you measure value? And is there an objective way to do that? Well, it's a question a lot of different people are asking right now. And there's some there's a lot of work being done to develop more standardized public um, objective ways of looking at a drug's value. So the first question is always when you ask about value, value to whom? So there may be value to a if a drug decreases cost, but if it, it may have a different value to a patient if it decreases cost but increases side effects. Um, so the value equation is complex. When 
when we look at value in healthcare, we also we always look at comparative value, both clinical and economic. And on the clinical side, you could look at outcomes, you could look at patient experience, you could look at ease of use. Um, there's many different dimensions of, of clinical and quality of life um, uh, dimensions that, that impact value on that side. Um, and then, obviously, on the cost side, it's not only just value based on the price of the product, but if that product leads to um, less use of medical resources or decreases in side effects that cost significant resource dollars, you can have a health economic benefit um, that goes beyond just the, the price of the drug itself. So value is, is complex and multifaceted. And as a result, there's many different ways to look at it. Um, and, and different stakeholder groups have, have developed different paradigms like uh, others to help folks um, have objective ways to measure value and, and look at drugs um, uh, across different um, different therapeutic areas. And, and the, the final thing I'll mention on, on value assessment is that the... the the way we want to ultimately think about value is if we have limited healthcare dollars, what's, um, what's the best way to use them to improve the overall health of the population? Um, that's, that's one way to consider it. That's a very public health population view. And that's kind of consistent with some of the socialized health system perspectives like um, UK and others. But that can come in conflict with an individual who might be um, seeking care for a life-threatening disease. What's best for them as an individual on an individual basis might not be best for the whole population. For example, um, using a very expensive oncology treatment or that extends their life for six to eight months. Just for example, so we have to be very very careful in the way we're looking at some of the value assessment tools and remember that there is a lot of subjectivity, there is a lot of ethical underpinnings in how we um, evaluate these products and consider the key dimensions of, of value equations and analysis. And there always has to probably be a human element um, overlaid on, on some of these ob ob objective um, equation-based tools. You talk about the need for new pricing models. There's been some experimentation in this area through novel alliances between drug makers and payers or drug makers and health systems. They seem to get a lot more attention when they're announced, but I've seen very little analysis of how they've worked out. One Ones I've gotten some insight into have left me with the impression that they're better on paper than in practice and that they've proven rather difficult to administer and track. What do we know about these types of arrangements to date? I think what we know is that it's probably the tip of the iceberg. I, I think uh, if we look ahead, we're going to see more and more of these types of um, innovative contracting, uh, value-based payments. Um, another way to think of that is kind of precision pricing solutions. Um, and I think we're going to do that because we have greater information than we ever have in the past. And that information and data creates an environment where the 
administration of these types of deals becomes easier and we have more objective measures of success. So I think that in the past, what made um, innovative contracting, performance-based risk sharing, those types of deals quite complex is that it was hard to agree on what the, the outcome measure would be. There were limited ways to share data. The administration of the deal created burdens for either the payer or the um, manufacturer or the trusted third party sitting in between them. Um, but that, that, that's getting easier as the, um, as the data backdrops are um, improving and getting more sophisticated. The parties are also getting more willing to um, accept some risk in, in going into these deals and working collaboratively towards them. So it's no longer everybody's first deal. People have experience writing them, working through the system, working with their legal entities to approve them, working with um, executives on both sides of the table to make sure that the terms are agreed upon. And so with that increased experience on both sides of the table, I think there's familiarity and gain and increasing trust so that we'll see more of these deals happen. Um, I think they are um, showing positive um, results to both parties or else you wouldn't be hearing more and more about them. Um, they make sense certainly for, for certain types of products more than others. So it's not the right thing for every product, but for those where um, there is a gap between what is known about the product and what is what the product's potential is from a clinical trial standpoint. Um, it, it creates a great opportunity to create um, uh, innovative contract to incent early access while some of the data is being developed. So, are, are there some good examples of arrangements that have worked? Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's lots of examples. Um, of of deals, it, you know, it it depends on what your measure of success for working is, right? I think on some level, when you read about a deal, that in itself is success because the deal enabled early access to the product itself. Um, if you're looking at the measure of success as being did did the product reach its endpoint, um, a lot of that data is um, not for for many of the for many of the deals, but you know I think ultimately where where we see um, probably the greatest the greatest success measure is the deal itself and and allowing early access to an innovative product where without a deal they would have been blocked in coverage or had much more limited access to patients. Well, it's it seems to me in the end that what what's happening in these deals is that a drug maker is unable to convince a payer of the value of a drug and to get them to use it they're essentially saying shift the risk to us we'll take the risk that it doesn't work and that we get paid is that is that yeah yeah i think that's right i mean i think what's what's important to understand about most of these deals is, is that the drug developer has so much more experience and knowledge about the drug than the payer does. They've been managing the clinical trials. They've been working with the compound for years. And so 
their level of um, confidence in the drug's performance in the real world may be greater than the payers. And so where they have a lot of confidence that the drug will perform strongly or that the drug will reflect what has occurred in the clinical trial in a real-world setting, it's a great opportunity to engage in a risk-sharing deal because the payer may be looking at the data saying, well, it looks impressive, but, you know, let's wait and see and see how it performs in the real world. Let's see how patient experience impacts outcomes. Let's see if there are things that, you know, didn't come out in the trial that might impact the benefit of this product. And in that way, where there's a there's a trust gap and an experience gap between the manufacturer and the payer, a risk-sharing deal can bridge that by saying, while you have this initial period of uncertainty, we will manage your risk of coverage. So we will either guarantee the outcome, so if it doesn't perform as we anticipate it to, we'll cover the cost difference, or another risk that payers will often see with a new product is, gosh, the data is so compelling that if we cover it initially, there's going to be um, widespread use that we can't manage. We won't really understand our risk. We don't think it really has utility in this broad-based utilization. We want to limit it more. And in that scenario, the manufacturer might create a a more financial-based risk-sharing deal, which would say, okay, we're going to limit your exposure. Um, So if you create coverage, you'll only be exposed up to you know, a certain number of patients' doses or costs so that the payer can gain predictability in their budgeting around just that new drug. And that's almost, that's sometimes as valuable as a clinical guarantee because, of course, payers, um, what they're really ultimately doing is managing their budgets and managing their risk while, you know, providing access to quality care for their customers. One area that seems to really be forcing people to rethink payment models is is the emergence of potentially curative therapies like gene therapies. There's been discussion of, of seeing these types of one-time treatments that provide a potential lifetime cure not being paid out up front, but paid out over many years. Is, is there anyone embracing that model yet? Yeah, that, um, that concept is getting more and more traction. And what I think will drive that um, that opportunity from kind of concept to practice is when some of these um, gene, gene therapies and other curative pro- products reach the market, as you mentioned, because it's, it's, it's like any other thing that has um, a guaranteed impact but a huge upfront cost. Um, the payer wants it, but the current structure, uh, the current financing structure for health insurance isn't really set up to absorb that level of cost. So you can imagine if a drug had a million-dollar price tag and a lifetime benefit, the payer might have been paying that much to treat that patient over a lifetime, but now you're basically aggregating all of those costs into a single point of time, and it's very, very difficult to absorb, especially if the population being treated is significant. So the idea of these um, innovative financing models is to say we we as the payer community understand and appreciate the value of these products, but we're going to pay for them in a way that creates a, a predictable um, 
a predictable budget impact over a period of time that's acceptable and agreeable um, to both parties. And so it starts to look like a mortgage um, or a car payment or many other um, kind of standard financial structures where you're buying something very expensive and spreading out the cost over time. Um, now, the question of some of these models is they seem to make sense from a lot of different parties, but the question will be, who is going to accept the financing risk um, of those agreements? Is it going to be the payers themselves? Is there going to be, um, you know, are the banks going to get involved? Are there going to be third-party finance structures helping to um, assure some of these deals? Because, again, it, it, it becomes a very different payment model than what's currently being done. But there's a lot of excitement around these types of innovations. Um, and whether it's kind of that annuity or mortgage-like payment um, whether it's um, some shared risk models, um, lots, lots under discussion, but I think you're going to see more of that to come as some of these very high-priced curative um, treatments reach market. What happens if drug makers don't embrace new models? What, what do you see as the risk to them? Well, you know, I, I think they're already embracing models. I don't think it's an if if they do or if they don't. I think it's already happening, and it's a matter of how these things get implemented in the marketplace and the degree to which payers and innovators can learn how to be on the same side of the table. Um, we have decades of history of opposition and distrust that really needs to be undone. And, and, and part of that is not only to get to better structures and deals, but what enables a lot of this missing and contracting innovation is information sharing and trust, um, and and you know that has to be built up over time. Um, the trust element, obviously, the information sharing is is just a component of the practice. What what we see is um, also that the payer and the pharmaceutical company are also no longer the the two main actors that are going to be deciding some of this. So if you look at the way that the healthcare industry is evolving and the, the way payment structures are evolving with risk-shifting models to care systems, as well as the increasing prevalence of integrated delivery networks that are taking kind of the total risk of the patient um, costs and care, you have different stakeholders at the table. And, and these different stakeholders integrated delivery networks, accountable care organizations are going to be willing to um, enter in to and collaborate with manufacturers in different ways in order to gain access to innovative treatment. Um, and similarly, um, manufacturers are going to be willing to enter into different types of agreements because they're going to get meaningful, experiential, real-world evidence out of those collaborations. So I think there's a huge willingness that's already happening, and I think what's, what's interesting is not only the type of deals that are happening, but the stakeholders that are involved are, are also continuing to evolve. Susan Garfield, Principal in EY's Life Sciences Advisory Services Practice. Susan, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. 
If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.